Well done, brother. And that second verse just undoes me every time I hear it. And every time I sing it. That he sent his son to bled and die to take away my sin. If that doesn't do something to you, and you claim to be a Christ follower, and that doesn't do something to you when you sing it, something's wrong with you. So, Dwayne, <laughs> kind of in a panic <laughs> this morning, uh, asked me, and, and I, I went, and, and considering the news from uh, Robbie and, and Mike Evans and some other things that we've been praying about, and uh, my mind, and with what he said this morning about going to God's sovereignty, um, my mind immediately went to Ruth chapter 1, so that's where we're going to be tonight. A while back, I preached through the whole book of Ruth, so it remains fresh, I think. Um, and so there's some things in this first chapter that we're going to say, one, two main themes that we're going to deal with. Uh, one is God's sovereignty, and one is the theme of redemption. I've, I've heard it said that Ruth is just a love story. What a, what a silly, silly puny perspective of the book. It is a love story, but it's so much more. Um, so let's pray together, and then we're, gonna, we're not going to read the whole text at once. We're going to go block by block through the, through the chapter. Father, thank you, Lord, first for that marvelous truth that Christ came for us when we had no hope, no alternative Christ came to do what we could not. And He came, Lord, for the people that Matt and Bethany are going to serve and all those other missionaries that are going to dark areas that have no gospel presence at all. You died for them as well. We're thankful for that. Moment by moment, day by day, as from the first moment we let, met You, Lord, let it continue to change us and break us and remake us. And let it continue here with your word tonight. Lord, by your grace, I ask you to help me handle your word rightly. Uh, and I ask it for your sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's some fundamentals that we always have to keep in mind in terms of theology and faith and some things. And one of them is one, a drum I, will, I don't think I'll ever stop beating. And that is that the entirety of Scripture, all of it. I heard one preacher, preacher I like to listen to by the name of Mark Driscoll, he puts it this way. God wrote a book, that book is the Bible, and the Bible is about Jesus. So the whole book, every part of the book, no matter where you are, ultimately points to one person in one place, and that's the cross of Christ. And that's a truth that, that I, will, I will never stop beating that drum, that, because I believe it. And uh, we, we see through the whole canon of Scripture what, what the scholars like to call a meta-narrative, an, an overarching story and it's the gospel. Uh, it's a story of how a holy God, separated from his creation by sin, sovereignly orchestrates the events of history for the event that would make possible reconciliation of his whole creation. Because there's two themes here. There's personal redemption of those who faith in Christ and judgment of those who don't. But there's also the reconciliation of his whole creation to himself. That we find in Christ, and that is the story of the book. And that, of course, includes the Old Testament. Every part, in some way, points to Christ. So, I, think, I like to think of the Old Testament, and it 
probably because I happen to be reading through the Lord of the Rings right now that I'm thinking in terms of this grand sweeping imagery. But um, I, I like to think of the Old Testament as this, this sweeping landscape. And from wherever you are in the landscape, these mountaintops and valleys and wherever you are, off in the distance on a mountaintop on the far end of the country, you can see the cross. And Ruth is one of those mountaintops that it's not obscured. It's a way off, but you can see it clear as day. You can see the cross off in the distance. From the mountaintop of Ruth, as Alistair Begg, our, Dave, one of David, my favorite Scottish preacher, says, he says, Ah, Ruth, sweet, sweet Ruth. <laughs> From the mountaintop of Ruth, the, the, the view of the cross is incredibly clear. So here we go. We're going we're gonna to read through block by block the first chapter of Ruth, and we're going to start. We're going to start to unpack some things, hopefully. So let's read. Uh, let's just begin in the first couple of verses. Let's read the first four verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. These took Moabite wives. And the name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now... Notice, first of all, notice the time in the story. This, this is interesting to me. If we go back one verse to the last verse in Judges, Judges 21-25, turn back one page, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, and, uh, or maybe as a result of there not being any king, there's not really any any uniform adherence or allegiance to God, no moral center, no common courtesy. Every man followed his own human conscience without seeking God or king. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Now, this is important for two reasons. First, it shows that the time of the famine could have been God's judgment on the land. We see that repeatedly as a cycle through the Old Testament. We know that this famine... Uh, was from God's sovereign hand. All things are. If you think back to Joseph's story, he understood that the famine that was coming uh, in Genesis 41:32, I believe, when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams about the famine that was coming there, he said it was fixed by God. So we will see that Naomi does well, uh, but we see a possible. We, we see that as Naomi does as well that, that God is sovereign, still in control, but. We also see maybe prob- uh, probable uh, circumstantial reasons for the famine that could have been God's judgment. Now, think, you know, Bethlehem was in Canaan. Canaan was the land flowing with milk and honey, and now it was in famine. You can't separate those sequences and that change from God's involvement somehow. Now, in our day, just as a side note, because of things I hear some of our Christian brethren say on the TV... I think we have to be careful about proclaiming natural disasters, especially on the airwaves, as God's judgment. Because, number one, we live in a different day, a different dispensation. And our language, especially when interacting with a lost world who would not understand a God who works in such a way, we must point to grace much heavier than justice. Does that make sense? 
The justice we deal with in the New Testament is much bigger than natural disasters anyway. And number two, the circumstantial reason for the events is not primarily important, even here. What's primarily important is that we believers, is that we know, even in the middle of the events, that God is sovereign, completely in control. This is why I immediately thought of this text. He's completely in control, even these things. He, he was never, he was not surprised, he was not taken, a, taken aback. He didn't see the famine happen and go, oh, that God didn't do that. And he doesn't do it now either. Now whether or not the famine was judgment or simply set in motion to set the stage for this part of God's story, we know that it was from God. All things are. Father filtered, as Dwayne just said. We'll come back to that. The second reason that Judges 21-25 is important is that it helps explain why Elimelech went to Moab in the first place. We know that the famine was a prime cause, of course. What's interesting to me, though, is that the word sojourn uh, and the fact that he had his family with him, that's interesting to me because it implies that Elimelech took his whole household, which would have been no easy, quick, or inexpensive task. You know, household meant his kids and probably their servants and their livestock and everything that went with them. So he could have been just as a possibility, he could have been a fairly well-to-do guy with his household and maybe not in any immediate danger of the famine. So the word sojourn could mean that he went to Moab to do business, to live among those who had more than his own country had in order to prosper his own interests. It's possible that a man, that a man whose name meant, my God is king, was in reality doing what was right in his own eyes. And that's what took him to Moab. Now, I only mention this to show, because Ruth, Ruth is, is, is an incredible picture of God's sovereignty in the details of our lives. And I, even, I only mention this to show that even the crookedness, potential, possible crookedness of a man's heart can and will and has often been used by God to see through his sovereign purposes. You see that? We're not even out of verse 1. We're not even out of verse 1. And we see a magnificent demonstration of our sovereign God. Surely, hopefully, for someone, that's a faith builder. It certainly is for me. So as we keep going, we're going to learn from Naomi about holding on to that truth, no matter what comes. If you look at, again at verses 2 through 5, if anyone had a reason to complain, it was Naomi. She would be on that list. She followed her husband to a foreign land who then dies uh, later, marries off her sons to foreign women, uh, who in that day was a much more serious issue than it is now. Now it's not an issue. Uh, saw ten years of no grandchildren. Then her sons die and she's left in Moab with her childless daughters-in-law. This is not a good situation for Naomi. She would have reason to do a little whining. Now, we already know that God's up to something here. We know, we know this story. Most of us know this story fairly well. So we have the bigger picture. Naomi didn't have the bigger picture. She couldn't see past her situation, which was arguably pretty bad, right? So for now, we're going to keep going, but for now, just know that whatever situation you are in, whatever situation you are in, whatever situation you are in, God is still sovereign. That's another drum that we're not going to stop beating. He is in control. Go back to Job. He, God, not Satan, God is in control. I'm not sure that's registering with you. God is in control. He's up to more than you can see. 
And when he sees your circumstances, he has the lens of eternity and the focus of his divine purpose to see your circumstance through. You don't have that. But it, let it at least help you take whatever your next step is, wherever you're walking, let it help that. Uh, when, I, when I studied through this book, I was reading at the same time a book by John Piper called A Sweet and Bitter Providence, which is his commentary of Ruth. And he says early on in the book, one of the main messages of this little book is that God is at work in the worst of times. Isn't that good to know? Let's read the next block. This is a little bit longer block. Start in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people again and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, which means kissed goodbye. And Ruth clung to her. This is a heart-wrenching scene. Naomi, concerned for her daughter's future and her lack of ability to provide it for them as matriarch, now tells them to leave her to her misery and returning to Israel and stay and go back to their own country. And at first, they both both refuse to leave. But I had an immediate question. What's up with this weirdness in verse 11 through, what, 13? Where she says, if I even... had a husband and, and had a son now, would you wait for him to marry? There was, this has to do with the law of the kinsman redeemer, which we're not going to go into at length. But there was a custom where, theoretically, according to the law, if she had more sons, they could marry them later. But that would be a long time to wait until they were old enough to marry. It has to do with the ancient custom, of the, which actually predates the law, by the way, of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, more commonly, we know of it that the brother of a deceased man would take his widow into their household as his wife caring and providing for her and continue to, continuing to produce offspring in the name of and on behalf of the dead. Now, this seems very, very odd to us, but at this time, in this context, it was normal. You just have to follow it away. For them, this was normal. But Naomi, Naomi had no more sons, and she could provide no more brothers for her widowed daughters-in-law to marry. Even if she could have, it would have been implausible at best for them to wait that long, right? So, one thought here, by the way. The fact that the kinsman redeemer, the custom of the kinsman redeemer, predates the law gives us a clue that God's plan for the redeemer predated the law as well. Capital R, redeemer. Did you catch it? As, as you see elsewhere and all through scripture and in John 1.1 and elsewhere, Christ was around before all of this took place. As part of the triune Godhead, redemption was always the plan. Oh, come on. Redemption in Christ was always the plan. 
Naomi's faith in God, at least in the fact that he is God and that he's sovereign, has not been taken, has not been given up. Now, when we go through difficult patches, hard things, difficulties, dark valleys, we need to know and desperately cling to the fact that God is in control. I said it before, I'll say it again, by His grace I'll say it till I stop breathing. God is sovereign. And even if we might not necessarily be happy about it, we should hang on to it. Because that's where Naomi is. She's not happy that God's in control, but she knows He's in control. Listen, let me say it this way. I want you to tune in. If you haven't, if you've tuned out, tune into this. Listen, God is big enough to handle your woe is me's until you make it through to the God is great. Alright? He's, 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 he's big enough. Naomi was very much in a woe is me kind of time. But we see that she never lost to God is great. Look at verse 13 again. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Uh, would you therefore refrain? The second part. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's, it's almost a he did this to me kind of statement. Which might be a true thing to say, but she's saying it from a place of difficulty and hurt and pain. She's in the woe is me. She's stuck there. Now I have to just stop and ask, maybe that's you. Maybe you find yourself in the hard place, stuck in the woe is me. Having a hard time keeping God in view. Keeping that cross on the distant mountaintop in view. Let me encourage you with this. You may have heard me say this before. Sometimes, when you cannot feel God, you have to cling to what you know about God. That He is good. He's not nice, but He is good. That He loves you. That He is sovereign. That He is faithful. That He is merciful. And you know those things. And you may feel a million miles away, but do not let go of what you know about God. Repent of woe is me and trust Him to get you through step by step, eyes on Him to the God is great again. Look at verse 15. So that's the first big thing. That Naomi never lost sight of the fact that God was sovereign even though she's in a real bad way. Okay? And even though she's in a real bad way and she knows He's sovereign, she's not happy about it. It just keeps registering with me. Verse 15, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, she's speaking to Ruth, and to her gods, and to return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Orpah, I keep wanting to say Oprah, I know that's not right. Orpah decided to leave as Naomi asked, but Ruth clung to her. Of course, an obvious question that commentators would have uh, have asked repeatedly is, uh, wouldn't it be better to just take them both back with her? If they could have helped her along the way, she would have saved them from the idolatry of the people of Moab and maybe bring them both But I think there's a test here, something that's important to to note. Uh, Of course, Naomi would have desired that both of her daughters-in-law come with her uh, and be be saved and come to faith in the one true God. But there's a principle here. Even if Naomi didn't have it in mind, I think there's something important, and it's the idea of conversion. 
Old Testament conversion. A conversion that's born out of anything other than a regenerated heart responding to God in faith and repentance is not a conversion at all. Even though it may look very similar to one. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us this. Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite. David has preached this. I've preached it to every, every preacher on the planet. It's probably preached it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. A conversion that's based in anything other than faith and repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, is not, it, it, it may come out of... Uh, yeah, when, the first time I was baptized, it was... I was a church kid. That's what you do when you're a church kid. You grow up, you pray the prayer, and you get dunked. Well, I want to fit in. Uh, I, how many times have we... I don't, know, I don't know. Well, no, I take that back. I have heard someone say, I prayed that prayer because I was scared of hell. <laughs> I, I've heard one person say, I prayed that prayer to get people off my back. Now, some of them are more obvious false conversions than others, but they're all false conversions. Any other... Relational, circumstantial, anything other than a regenerated heart responding to God. No one can say yes to God in faith unless God works in their heart first. It cannot happen. Jesus told us that. Orpah had obviously not experienced that conversion. At least we don't have any evidence that she did, but Ruth apparently had. Because not only does she stay with Naomi as her mother, she takes Naomi's God as her own. She, God used her devotion to Naomi to bring her to devotion to him. In verse 17, Ruth, Ruth makes an oath in the name of Yahweh. When you see in the Old Testament, in many mainline translations, like you see it here, the Lord, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And she had been around this family long enough to know what she was doing. She was professing faith in the one true God. Ruth had been converted. It's, it's almost as if Naomi's pushing them back because she doesn't want them to come to Israel with a false assurance. Doesn't sound like discussions we're having a lot here lately? Ruth's faith was proved, tested and proven. I'm going to move on because I don't want to lay there too long. We've got a little bit more ground to cover. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they, became, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. <laughs> and when the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She's still stuck in the woe with me, isn't she? So Naomi shows back up in Bethlehem. And this was kind of a... I didn't... This kind of caught me by surprise where my thoughts went on this. She went back to Bethlehem, went back home, and the gossip mill starts churning. Can you believe she'd come back here after she left? On side note here, that's not actually not a side note. 
is probably a main note. When someone comes to church, comes back to church, comes to church, for, and, and I will say this also going into this, I'm grateful that to a large degree, by God's grace, Dorsville does a pretty good job of accepting people. We do. By God's grace, He has softened collectively our hearts to people in hard places. But it's still all too familiar, isn't it? When someone comes to church, comes to faith, comes walks the aisle, comes to a small group, to a Bible study, and they come from bad, questionable, shady backgrounds, I think it goes without saying, don't, don't look at them funny and drop your jaw and what are they doing here? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to welcome them. We're supposed to engage them. You might be the person that that wayward person, that, that sinner, because we got like the us and them thing, you might be the one through whom they hear the gospel, not the hired guns. You might be the one that he wants to share the light of the gospel into their life. They may look different, they may smell different, they may act different, they may talk very different than we're used to hearing. They may have reputations and backgrounds that we don't have. Here, here's the thing, though. You haven't walked where they have walked. And when Naomi showed back up in town, and I just kind of sensed this, oh, that's Naomi. They hadn't been where she'd been. They hadn't been, and she'd been through some pretty hard circumstances. And here's the thing. You haven't walked the path that they've walked, and it's not your job to get them off that path. That's God's job. Your job is to be intentional, loving, grace-filled, and start some kind of relationship with them so you can point them to Christ. It's God's job to change their path, by which we mean change their heart. You see, there's three parts to every relationship. There's my part, your part, God's part. And we're talking about the lost world out there, and those sinners. <laughs> you realize I say that tongue-in-cheek, because those sinners, there's three pointing back at me. Right? Our part, love, share the gospel, serve, share the gospel, preach, share the gospel, welcome, share the gospel. Well, you share the gospel is repeated in there. God's part is to work in their heart. You can't do God's part. So you have to pray that He's going to do His part. And when those two happen, they have to do their part, which is respond in faith and repentance. We are... Anyway, I, I know I'm staying too long. We're, just, we're such Pharisees sometimes, the way we treat people that are different than us. And so when these women met Naomi on her return to Bethlehem, they weren't very welcoming. And sadly, sadly, that feels too familiar to me. And we should repent of that. Now, granted, and this is where we have to put ourselves on the other side of this equation, Naomi's response to them isn't very gracious either. We see that she acknowledges God as sovereign, but she's pretty snippy about it. Is that Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And I can just see her, either forlorn or with her arms crossed and stomping. But she's not real. She's, she's still stuck in the woe is me, and this time she wants everybody around her to know that she's stuck in the woe is me. You know anybody is like that? Listen, there's one little gem in that Piper book that I, that I remember writing down. I remembered it. It goes like this. When we have decided that God is against us, 
we tend to over-exaggerate the hopelessness of our circumstances. Uh-huh. Don't act all spiritual like you don't know what I'm talking about. Such was the case with Naomi and often is the case with us. Listen, don't let that on either side, when you find yourself on either side of that, don't let that dissuade you by serving your Savior, by serving them. For in so doing, you might be the conduit through which the light of the gospel shines into their life. And don't let yourself lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign and try not to let that let you uh, put up a block to keep that grace that God wants to show you through those other people that are welcoming and are loving and are forgiving. Because that woe is me thing when our arms are up, we put up a wall and nothing can get in. Repent of the woe is me and one step at a time let Him get you through back to the God is great. God is sovereign. That doesn't change. Whether we're being a Pharisee and we have to repent, or whether we're stuck in the middle of the darkest valley, which is where Naomi found herself in Ruth chapter 1. Now there's one more thing to point out from this chapter before we close. And this is just so good. Because I said early on at the onset that every place in Scripture points to one place. In this chapter, this is, this is how this points to the Gospel. This is, this, is, this is really cool. Ruth is constantly called early on as Ruth the Moabite. In the Israelite account, this is, a, this is a book that made it into our canon of Scripture, right? She's called Ruth the Moabite. Why is that a stigma enough to be attached? And why is it important? Moab, the nation of Moab, originally came originated from an incestuous encounter between Lot and his daughters, found in Genesis 19. For the record, this was the fault of the daughters. They got him blind drunk, and you can go read that story for yourself. We'll discuss that another time. Now, this was, this was from any point of view, much less from a Hebrew law-grounded point of view, this was a really bad place. Attached to that, the clear and direct statement in the Law of Moses found in Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 through 6, that no Moabite, says it clearly, no Moabite, among others, that is in a long list there, would enter the assembly of the Lord, meaning in this context Israel, meaning larger context people of God, meaning larger spiritual context the family of God, because of their treatment of Israel after the exodus from Egypt. And you wind up with a pretty dismal outlook for Ruth the Moabite. She should have never gotten in in the first place. Now you're starting to get it. She should have never married Israelite boys. She should have never been extended favor that we see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. She should have never been included in God's spiritual family according to the law of God. But the Moabitess was not only extended grace... She's made an ancestor of Christ. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Now, for all of us law keepers, for all of us rule makers, because we have lots of rules we make on our own, and for those of us who love to insist that sinners follow our rules and stop acting like sinners before we really are comfortable with them, 
Let me give you and the rest of us one of the big ideas that just continues to just, just smack me from the book of Ruth. It's three words. Three words that I wrote down. And if you get these words, if you embrace them, if you let them seep into your heart, if you choose to live them, they are so liberating, they're so freeing, they're so challenging, so life-changing that you can finally stop beating yourself up. Even when you mess up, you can finally be free from performance-based living and theology, which is miserable. You can stop trying to live as a rule keeper and start living as a grace receiver. Not to mention the fact that grace will get so heavy and thick on you and so heavy it will begin to flow through you in such a way that you have no choice but to not keep it to yourself. You have to start extending grace to others. Three words. You might want to write these down. They're not from the text. They're from from Dave. Grace trumps law. Always. Grace trumps law. Grace overcomes, overrules, does away with, cancels out law and its effects. Now just stop for a minute and let that sink in and permeate your heart. Let that break the bars of the prison we call religion open. Grace trumps law. I could just suggest you just say good night and go home. Grace always overcomes law and its consequences. It always does. Fittingly, the chapter ends at the beginning of barley harvest. A time of renewal, a time of hope, a time of new beginnings, a time of grace. So we're just going to kind of stop there and ask, perhaps where you are on your journey, maybe years and years and years and years of keeping rules and trying to measure up and trying to make God happy with you, maybe you need to stop and let grace try. No, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the ways, things we should do and shouldn't do, and the, and the, and it doesn't mean there's important things about the way we live and the things we should do and not do. But if that's what you're basing your worth on, You will be miserable. Rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand that your worth before God doesn't come from what you do. It comes from to whom you belong. That's where it comes from. Duane likes to say it this way, nothing you do is going to make God love you less and nothing you do is going to make God love you more. Now, parents get that. We get that. How many times have we said that to our kids? Especially when they've messed up. Big time. We have to say, you should should know this doesn't make me love you any less. Some of you, I feel like God is tapping on your shoulder, whispering in your ear, or screaming at the back of your head. That doesn't make me love you less. Turn away from it. Repent and come back and rest in what I've already given you in the cross. Maybe you need to let grace trump some law in your life. 
Maybe you need to trust him completely again from a heart. You've already been gripped by grace. You've already repented of sin. You've already trusted in Jesus. But just over time, the layers and layers and layers of junk that we try to put on top of that, you need to let grace peel some of that away and go back to the gospel. Maybe you're in the middle of a hard place and you need to renew your trust in a God that you should know is sovereign. Listen, He has proven Himself far too many times. If we opened up the floor, we'd be here for hours with just this many people in the room of ways He has proven His goodness and faithfulness and love and mercy and presence and provision and healing and all the other ways that He's made Himself known. He's proven Himself far too many times for you to doubt Him. So why do you doubt Him? God is sovereign. Hold on to that. Your very life may depend on it. Don't let it go. Maybe you just need to renew your trust in a sovereign God who always has you and your situation well in hand and always has His ultimate glory and your ultimate good at heart. He always does. Of these things of of religion and Pharisee junk and lack of trust and letting ourselves get stuck and bogged down in the woe is me. Let us repent of these things and step by step rest in the gospel again. Get our eyes back on God. Get our eyes back on Christ. And one step at a time, start making our way back to we can say, God is great. And God is good. And God is faithful. At the moment, you might not feel much like saying that. Maybe you should just start saying it to yourself over and over and over and over. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to end with a quiet time. Just right there at your seat. No music, just silence. Because this, this, is, this is where I feel when we're in a place like this, God wants to kind of come around and just embrace us and undergird us and, and, and cup us and hold us in His hand. And some of us, I feel like, are there and I don't want to disturb that with, with anything else. You know, after we're done, if you need someone to pray with you or you've got questions or you want to just hear more, Dwayne's here, I'm here. There's other people in the room that you know trust in a sovereign God. Again, you don't always have to go to the hired guns. We love it. We're glad and grateful that we get to do that to counsel people. But you might be sitting next to someone, and right when we're done, you say, I'm going to talk to this person because God's put them next to me tonight. That's okay. But just for a moment, let's just sit. And you should keep in mind that God knows your heart. He made you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. So just be honest with him there for a second. Do I really trust you, Lord? Do I really trust you, Lord? And if the answer is that is yes, then thank God. 
That's because he's working faith in your heart. If the answer to that is not so solid, then just keep saying it. God is sovereign. God is good. God, you're faithful. I can't feel it right now. I don't really want to admit it right now. I'm not real happy with you right now, but I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. And if nothing else tonight, you go home hanging on to that. God, in the middle of my hard, hard, hard place, I know you are good and faithful and you're in control. God, thank you for a powerful, powerful couple of truths tonight. One, that by your grace, those of us who have trusted you, faith in Christ, though we, are, we, were, as, we were as outcast as Ruth the Moabite, we should not know mercy, but because of your grace, we do. And it is because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And when I think that God, his son, night sparing, sent him to die to take away my sin, Lord, I'm grateful. We are grateful for that truth. Let us rest there again. For some of us, Lord, let it renew some freedom in our lives from the lie of guilt and shame. Lord, I'm also grateful for the truth that our God, in every circumstance, in every valley, in every mountaintop, in every moment, is completely sovereign, in control. That is the God that we serve. And when the storms and our circumstances and our enemy want to whisper in our ear that we have no hope, let us not believe that lie. When we feel a million miles away, let us remember what we know. My God is God. So thank you for reminding us of that. For what you've done in every heart here tonight, including my own. I give you thanks. I give you praise. In Jesus' precious name.